0: Today, we're talking about justice as a topic. And I want to talk about this. I want to talk about justice. um, But in delivering this message, I think I need to lay down some basic foundations. And I mean, really basic foundations. Questions like, well, what is justice? What is goodness? Because goodness... And justice are synonymous with each other. We need to know what's good in order to know what's just. And I perceive in today's world, and I've had a bunch of conversations even during the break about this. I perceive in today's world there's a great amount of misused language around themes of justice and social justice around words like love. Um, all of these words are used in such ways that don't represent what, what's presented to us in, in God's word about what it means to be good, what it means to be just. Until the 5th of March, uh, people are parading in the streets of Sydney in the name of justice, um, celebrating uh, Gay Pride Week. Right now, schools, Australian schools are under attack in an attempt to exclude Christian teachers from Christian schools. And they do this under the guise of anti-discrimination. And these things are called justice. What is justice? In society and and perhaps even in many of our churches, the lines defining justice are becoming very blurred. Satan's lies are everywhere. And this ties right into what Trav was saying this morning. Satan's lies are everywhere. And he uses words like justice as bait. Because we know that justice is good and justice is right. And so when someone says that they're fighting for justice, that's a cause that we want to get behind. But so many in our world are using uh, the same word justice, but with a different dictionary meaning for justice. And if we're not aware of that, it's so easy for us to get sucked into the currents of worldliness, of what society preaches uh, to be good. And we do get preached to all the time. We hear more worldly sermons about justice and love and what's right and what's wrong than even us who may be here every Sunday hearing from God's word. We're bombarded with this stuff. It's like become the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in. What is justice? like a plumb line like a plumb line justice refers to a standard or basis for morality justice is alignment with a standard of goodness and often goodness or righteousness is synonymous with justice opposite of that is injustice and evil an action can be said to be unjust if it is out of alignment with the moral standard. And here's a picture of a plumb line here, which is an ancient, an ancient instrument of measurement, and they still use them today, which I think is really cool. To understand goodness, to understand what is right, to understand what is just. We need to go back to what for many of us maybe was our very first Bible lesson. When our Parents or someone at school or someone teaching us about God's word opened up the Bible. Maybe they went to Genesis and they said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. And God separates the light from the darkness. God creates the sky. He creates an expanse. Day three, he creates dry land. He creates seas, plants, and trees. And he says, Wow, it is good. Day four, he creates the sun, the moon, the stars. And at the end of the day, he says, It is good. He creates the creatures of the sea and creatures that fly. And God saw that it was good. On day six, he created the land animals and people. God saw that all he had made was not only good, but it was very good. It was very, very good. James 1.17 reiterates uh, this point. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Because God does not change his standard, his plumb line, his measurement for what is good does not change. He is the immovable rock whose work is perfect for all of his ways of justice. Everything he does is just and good and perfect. I was reading scientists of discovered I think fairly recently, that at the beginning of the universe, if you took a nickel, a coin, and you threw that amount of mass into god 's creation um, right at the beginning of all things, it would have been enough to throw everything out of balance, and the universe, as we know it, would be impossible. God 's world and everything he made is so perfect. There is no regal room. Everything we know life couldn't exist if if there was a nickel worth of mass more um, in, in the created universe. Everything from God is just. Everything from God is good. Everything from God is perfect. How do we uncover true justice in an unjust world? We go to God's word, which is a revelation to us of God's will, his plan, his salvation for us. It's very out of vogue, I think, right now to say God's word says or the Bible says. It doesn't carry the same weight and power that maybe it once did in society. Maybe once upon a time you used to be able to say, well, well, you know, the Bible says this and people would listen but people don't listen anymore when you say the Bible says. But I have to keep saying the Bible says because there is no other standard by which you can judge anything. I mean, God's Word is the revelation of His will, the revelation of His goodness and justice in the world. And if I shy away from saying the Bible says, then I've really got nothing to go to. The Bible says, because without it, we cannot know God's good and perfect will. Micah 6, 8. I forgot to put the citation in there, but this is, this is Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love Mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. The prophet Micah warns Israel of God's coming judgment upon them for their sin. And he poses the question in the preceding verses, the verses just before this, if you want to look at your Bibles in Micah 8. He asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for all my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do I need to sacrifice my own children for this? What will please God? And Micah says, no. Why do you keep playing this guessing game? God requires you to be an outpouring of his justice and mercy as he has revealed it to you. But you, Israel, have fallen into the rhythms of worshipping false gods and idol worship. And now you begin to think that what uh, these sacrifices are going to please God. That's not what God asks of you. Not one upright person remains, says Micah. We look again at the Ten Commandments. Are we sure that we measure up to God's perfect standard of justice? Have you ever placed anything before or above God in your life? Have you ever disobeyed or dishonored your parents? Have you ever lied to someone or misrepresented the truth in any way whatsoever? Have you ever taken something that was not yours? Have you ever been sexually immoral or even toyed with the idea of sexual immorality in your mind? There is simply no denying it by the ultimate standard, by God's standard. We are all guilty. We are all guilty. And it gets worse because we've not only wronged other people, we have wronged God himself. As God is the ultimate standard for goodness, he is ultimately the offended party. The cross is God's solution for dealing with the evil and the injustice in the world. By allowing Jesus, his only son, to die for the sins of the world, God is satisfying his requirement for justice. But he also satisfies his desire to show mercy. I think there's a wonderful um, section of a speech here that I want to I want to read to you because I could preach to you about the saving grace of Jesus that is available to all sinners and you could hear it from me. But perhaps I think this sermon might be better. Maybe it's more powerful spoken by Rachel Denholander. She was a gymnast who was serially, serially abused by her physician over several years. Um, and this is a little bit of a lengthy excerpt from her, from her victim impact statement, which she read in court in 2018. But I think you will agree with me that Rachel applies God's justice, but also his mercy that we see in, in Jesus on the cross In the way that she addresses her abuser in court. Here's what she says. In our early hearings. You brought your Bible into the courtroom. And you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible that you carry. You know the definition of sacrificial love. Portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin, which he did not commit by his grace. I, too, choose to love in that way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But, Larry. If you have read the Bible, you carry You know, forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds could erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it better says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and for you to throw yourself into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble oh larry you have you have damaged hundreds of children the bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of god's wrath And eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt So you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend it to you as well. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis, where he says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has first some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimizing, without minimization or mitigation. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you, because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. I find those words from this lady, Rachel, um, so devastatingly beautiful, miraculous, that in the face of her abuser, she can hope that he will come to understand the grace that she has experienced. These are the words of someone who knows that she herself is not sinless, that she is not without fault. And so she can look at another sinner, as heinous as his sins were and as personal as they were to her, and hope that that he too will find the same grace that's been extended to her because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done. The cross makes true justice possible. But it won't come to completion until Christ's return. God's mercies, they're, they're new every morning and every day he does not come back to judge us, which he will at some point. It's just more mercy that he's extending, extending to us day by day. He wants all people to be saved and he wants all people to come to an understanding of the truth. As we read in First Timothy, God delays the final justice. Knowing full well that injustice and evil will continue and that we will suffer because of it. But he delays it for the sake of mercy because God is patient. Second Peter chapter three, nine to 12. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed with which it's coming. On that day, two books will be opened. On that day that Jesus comes back, we will stand at the throne of God and two books will be opened. We read about this in Revelation 20. One of the books will list everything that you have ever done. All your thoughts, all your actions will be judged against God's good and moral standard and nothing will be hidden. Nobody escapes God's judgment in the end. But then there's another book. And it's the book of life. And it also records the names of, of those who, although guilty, have received mercy simply by receiving it. In the end, there will only be those poor in spirit. Those ones who knew about their sin, who understood, who recognized the evil in their own lives. And in humility, they cried out for mercy. And God answered and wrote their name in the book. And there will be those who are proud, who celebrate their pride. And their names will not be found in the book of life because they did not. Look at the cross of Jesus and recognize their need for his sacrifice and for his blood. Some final thoughts, and I want to touch on um, social justice a little bit. Not to go into it too deeply, but I think it's relevant to our time, to our place, and it's something that we should address um, as an assembly. I've said just us is not justice. And what I mean by that is if we exclude God from our idea of what is just, of what is good, then that is not justice, it's something else entirely. It's one of those pieces of bait that Trav was pointing out to us before. It's a fishing attempt to hook us onto something that we might think is good but is based on on nothing. Without God, there is no true justice. If it is just us, there is no justice. As Christians, we have to be really careful not to align ourselves with man-made standards of justice. Much is fought for in the name of justice in our society. People fight for all sorts of things in the name of justice. But the church cannot get carried away by the currents. ...of social justice that seek to pit one group of people against another. And that's what we see. These people over here, this group, they're the evil ones. And this group, group over here, they're the victims. This isn't a fight against uh, evil and good that people are, are fighting for. This is about pitting one group of people against another. About weighing one group of people's sins as heavier than another people's sins. Um, there's a fellow named Scott David Allen, and he he uh, writes a book, and I had a look at his book um, to sort of help me think through some of these issues. Um, but he he puts up some comparisons between some of the social justice beliefs that we're bombarded with every day um, and compares it to God's justice. And I think it helps us just to look at these things side by side to see just how different the world's idea of justice is from God's idea of justice. It starts with a moral question. What is ultimately real? Well social justice might say the human mind defines what is ultimately real. But God's justice says well, it's the God of Genesis 1-1 that defines what is ultimately real. Who are we? Are we products of our race, our gender, our sex, our minority group, where we come from in the world? Or are we image bearers of a good, holy, loving God with inherent dignity and worth? What is our Fundamental problem as people. Is it that we're oppressed? Is it white males maintaining power structures to oppress minorities? Is that our fundamental problem? Or is it rebellion? Is it all? Is it that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? What is the solution to our problem? Is it revolution? Revolution? overthrow the power structures, knock out those who've done injustice for hundreds of years and start again, do things our own way? Or is it the gospel? On the cross, God incarnate bore our punishment for sinful rebellion. And how can we be saved? Is it that victims are morally innocent And do not require salvation. And is it that the oppressors, they cannot be pardoned. The best they can do is just get out of the way of progress. Or is it that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, as we read in Romans? Is there a future final judgment? No, there is no God who will punish the wicked, says the world. Injustice must be rooted out by those with power. Or yes, God will return and accomplish perfect justice. He will preserve all that is good and rid all that is evil. Jesus does not leave us as helpless victims of injustice and sin. He does not desire, it is not his desire that we stay in our sinful state. Or that we celebrate our sinful state. Rather, he came to save us from ourselves, that our joy will be the hope of our salvation through him. And as Christians, we act out of our true and proper religion religion, by helping widows and orphans in their distress. And Christians act, Christian acts of God's justice are desperately needed in this world. We cannot delegate God's justice to other organizations outside the church. We cannot expect the world to do the right thing. We cannot even understand the world to even understand what justice is. It's our responsibility to stand up for what is right. According to God's definition of justice. And the church does need to be outspoken against injustice in our society. And we need to defend the voiceless and we need to protect the vulnerable. And when the government oversteps, the church should remind our leaders of God's judgment. So they know injustice will not go unpunished by God in the end. The church has work to do, and we are we are to let the world know that mercy and forgiveness are available through the finished work of Christ. That's our primary purpose. Now, Michael is just saying before that. Was it the uh, the bishop of an Anglican bishop was saying the church has lost its purpose. Maybe we need to get a little bit more serious about climate change. If that's how we're thinking, we've missed the point. We've misunderstood God's justice. God's justice exists in the cross where His desire, his need for justice is satisfied, but where he also extends mercy so that we don't carry the full weight or the full consequences of our sin. As Christians, as a church in the world, we need to give our neighbors a foretaste of the coming kingdom by modeling justice in our relationships and opposing injustice wherever it happens. I think it's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like creating signposts. Now, you know, there's a train of thought that says, well, Jesus is coming. There's no point fighting for God's justice because we can't change the world. But there is a point in fighting God's justice. And I think this is one of the strongest arguments for Christians to stand up for justice. When Christians seek justice, they create signposts that offer other glimpses into the heaven that is to come. Although we cannot solve the problems of the world, we can demonstrate how God's justice is alive and practiced by his people in the church. People need to see that people need to see that we are passionate about God's justice, about what God knows to be right and to be wrong. I'm not I'm not especially political. But I realize now that the church is the only voice in Australia defending God's justice in the world. And we need to be prophetic voices in our society to remind everyone of God's eternal judgment. We need to pray for our enemies that they will come to repent of their sins. So their names will be written in the book of life. Like Rachel, the gymnast, we need to be able to call out injustice and call it for what it is with confidence. But also in calling out injustice, extend God's mercy and grace, which we as Christians have ourselves, ourselves tasted and experienced My name is in the book of life. Our names are in the book of life, and that should give us confidence to address the evil that's in this world, to call it for what it is. Um, There was an email that was sent out a couple of weeks ago about new legislation being put forward to essentially um, take away Christian schools' rights to discriminate based on whether or not the staff they employ are Christians or not. And this is a huge problem. This is a very deliberate attack on, on Christians, of the outreach of, of Christian schools in our society. And it's something that we have to pray against. And it's something that we have to make our voices heard Um, In regards to our government needs to be reminded that pushing the gospel away has deadly, deadly consequences for our society, for our children, for us.